With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to China Corner Office, a podcast produced in partnership with SupChina, featuring conversations with business leaders from around the world about the challenges and opportunities of doing business in China, the world's most dynamic economy. I'm Chris Marquis, a professor of business at Cornell, where I teach and research on this same topic. Every episode, we talk to an executive at a company doing business in China and explore what has led to their personal and business success and also some of the challenges they've encountered along the way. With geopolitical tensions between the U.S. and China on the rise, understanding how business can compete in China is more important than ever. If you're interested in doing business in China or are looking for insights to adjust your current business strategy, this is the show for you. Thanks for tuning in. Today, introducing the podcast, we have a live event on trade tensions and technology distrust with James McGregor, who is the Greater China Chairman for APCO Worldwide. For the China-watching community, you know, Jim is really someone who needs no introduction. You know, given the diversity of things that he's done in his career, I thought it would be at least useful to give a few of the highlights. Uh, so currently at APCO, his work focuses on advising a wide variety of multinationals on China business, China politics, and communication strategies. Uh, he's also the author of two highly regarded books, no Ancient Wisdom, No Followers, The Challenges of Chinese Authoritarian Capitalism, was published in 2012, and I think a very prescient analysis of the China economic model under President Xi. And in 2005, he also wrote the very influential One Billion Customers, Lessons from Front Lines of Doing Business in China. Uh, so before his work as a businessman, Jim was a journalist. Uh, he covered Congress during the Reagan administration and was bureau chief for the Wall Street Journal in Taipei and Beijing. After switching to business, he was CEO of Dow Jones in China and later founded a China-focused research and advisory firm for hedge funds. Jim has lived in China for 30 years, uh, splits his time typically between Shanghai and Beijing. However, due to the coronavirus, he's currently working from his Minnesota lake cabin, which, as you can see, his background looks a little bit more like a Minnesota cabin than a Beijing high rise. So welcome, Jim. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. Great. So um, 
to get started, I think, you know, given your long experience working in tech in China, I'd like to start just with a big picture question. You know, given your background, can you maybe just contextualize a little bit the current situation as you see it and how, you know, what has come before can really help our understanding of the current day? Well, yeah, actually, I'm, I'm going to uh, walk us through about 150 years as quick as I can. On, uh, on, on China and technology. China's been playing technology catch-up with the West since the Qing Dynasty. You know, when, when Britain showed up with the gunboats and, and China was ill-equipped to handle it, um, uh, you know, then that led to the self-strengthening movement uh, in the 1860s based on weaponry and transportation. Um, then as, as, as China opened up a bit and some of the students went overseas, you had actually in, in uh, 1914, Cornell at Cornell University, Chinese students uh, founded the Science Society of China. Um, then you, you, you get into the, uh, into the Mao era and, um, you know, you have 11,000 scientists and engineers come to China from the Soviet Union. Um, 40,000 Chinese students go to the Soviet Union to study. And that was really the beginning of the industrial modernization. 1956. Mao does uh, uh, the first uh, science uh, big push plan, um, uh, based basically on um, on the Soviet model, um, and uh, that ends up being called two bombs and a satellite. Uh, the hydrogen bomb, the atom bomb, and the 1970 East is Red satellite came out of that. And I'll tell you, a lot of that technology knowledge came from Chinese who were pushed out of the United States by McCarthyism. So looking at our today's situation, we should take a lesson from that. Um, and then Deng Xiaoping in, uh, in 1978 does his, his model of this uh, when modernization starts. He puts together 20,000 experts uh, and they come up, they come up with a, a plan with 108 key projects. But it, it, and, uh, and, Chinese, and Chinese diplomats start going all over the world uh, signing uh, S&T agreements with about 100 countries. Um, uh, as we move forward then into um, um, uh, who and when, uh, when, when they come in, they decide uh, that uh, you know science and technology is going to be uh, uh, core to their 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 term in office. Uh, they spend three years working on what became the Indigenous Innovation Plan, which comes out in two thousand six. Uh, this is a fifteen year plan to boost science and technology. Um, it was uh, also based on innovation, co-innovation, and re-innovation of technologies from the outside. Um, you can and um, a whole bunch of mega projects on chips, oil and gas equipment, nuclear reactors, pharma, aircraft, spaceflight, etc. But that innovation, co-innovation, and re-innovation woke up the international technology community. That did not sound like a fun thing to have um, your Chinese partners, um, you know, taking your technology, assimilating absorbing it and then um, uh, replacing you globally is what they wanted to do. So China goes back to the drawing board because there's a lot of pushback on that. And they 2009, they come up with strategic emerging industries. The idea on this is let's go for the industries of the future, industries that are not fully developed, where we can lead, where we, through our own, um, through our own research, um, so they came out with this plan in to November 2009, uh, and when when um, 
when it was introduced, uh, Wen Jiabao talked about four missed opportunities and China could not afford to miss another opportunity. These four missed opportunities, one was the Industrial Revolution, they missed because of the backwardness of the Qing Dynasty, and then the failed self-strengthening movement. Uh, the third one would be the first half of the 1900s with the warlords and then, of course, the Japanese invasion. And then fourth one would be the Cultural Revolution and the Great Leap Forward. And uh, Xi Jinping, who was vice president at the time, he said that strategic emerging industries would decide the future commanding heights of the economy. So let me just tell you what these industries were. There were seven that were chosen. You're going to be hearing these industries over and over again because they start going through all the plans. Clean energy tech, biotech, next generation IT, high-end manufacturing, alternative energy, new materials, clean energy vehicles. So then um, the problem with those plans was a lot of the money was still was controlled by the bureaucrats. It became a game of getting money from the government. A lot of the money went to state labs and state-funded entities, and there was not a lot of a lot of um, uh, entrepreneurship involved. And um, they 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 didn't make a lot of progress. They made some, but not not incredible amounts of progress. So then they come in with Made in China 2025. Um, and this was put together starting in 2013 by the Chinese Academy of Engineering and MIT. Um, finally came out with it in May 2015. Uh, Ten priority sectors. I'll go through some of these again just to remind you of the continuity. Uh, next generation infotech, robotics, aerospace, maritime vessels, advanced rail, no, uh, new energy vehicles, electric equipment, biomed, medical devices, on and on and on. And then there was something called the Green Book, which set up the implementing um, um, procedures for this. And this got uh, the world's attention because it said quotas. I'll give you some of these quotas. By 2025, they had a target of 80% of the domestic market would be Chinese new energy vehicles. 70% of the domestic market for robotics would be Chinese. For high-performance medical device, 70%. Mobile phone chips, 40%. Now, these were goals, um, and many of them unachievable, but don't think that didn't get the attention of the world because um, I've never underestimated China. If China doesn't make a goal, they turn around and they go at it at a different angle, but it showed their intentions. Um, this is about indigenizing research and development to control segments of the global supply chain, substitute for foreign products, of course, uh, and then lead to global market share. So uh, we've got some recent news. Last week, uh, so much, you know, there was so much criticism, criticism made in China 2025 that they quit using that term last year, maybe the year before, uh, not that they didn't keep moving ahead, but they quit using that term. And just last Wednesday, or last Tuesday, I guess, um, they, they came up with a, a new plan called the New Strategic Emerging Industries. This was done by an announcement by NDRC, MOST, MIT, and Ministry of Finance. This new SEI plan is just bare bones. We'll have to spend some time looking at it to see what it turns into. But it calls for 10 strategic emerging industrial bases, 100 strategic emerging industrial clusters, 1,000 strategic emerging industrial ecosystems. I do not know what they mean by that, but it sounds pretty amb ambitious. And it also picks out eight investment areas. Here, we'll listen to it again. 5G, biotech, vaccines, robotics, chips, aerospace, new materials, new new energy vehicles, green tech, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, 
So um, that's where we sit today with the evolution. I, I, I wanted to go through that because I wanted to show people the context of where we are today. This didn't just come out of nowhere. Yeah, very much. I mean, the continuity, definitely, you can see it through the different industries and also just the overall idea of having these plans with very ambitious goals. Uh, I'm curious if you know from from the 2009 uh, industry, some of the strategic industries, uh, you know, how, how many of those did they did they actually come close to meeting the objectives? Do you have any sense of that? I think the pieces of them work. Look what they've done with their space program. Um, and um, uh, look, look what they've done with 5G. Look what they've done with um, quantum computing. You know, it, it's, it's been spotty. But of course, when you, when you put that many smart Chinese people and a lot of money behind it, you're going to get something. And, 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 and in, you know, some of the Chinese institutes are actually pretty smart and capable. Uh, you know, they, they've evolved from the, the days of having a lot of high-tech equipment and a lot of people sitting around, of course. Right. And how about your sense from being on the ground there? I know it's been a while because you've been in Minnesota since COVID, but I'm sure you, I know you, you know, talk to government officials and other leading Chinese executives. You know, what's your sense from your discussions with them as far as the current plans and what some of the, you know, there's, you know, thousands of this, tens of thousands of that, like what some of the really key priorities are? Well, let me take you back to the ancient history, uh, December, November last year before COVID. Um, I was up in Beijing um, at a couple of conferences, and I am talking to some retired uh, cabinet-level ministers, actually. And they were supremely confident. This is pre-COVID now. Um, you know, they, they were saying, you know, the U.S. is un, uh, focused on undermining the Communist Party and containing China. Um, and so, um, you know, we're not worried about this. Um, they've gained a lot of confidence from how Huawei had handled um, all, all the pressure put on it. Um, they were worried about supply chains breaking, um, that um, the supply chains keeping them in China was very important. But you know, the, one of them said to me, the world's more dependent on China than China's dependent on the world. Um, and uh, you know, we're the only country with all of the 525 subsectors in manufacturing. Um, and they were saying things like, you can't beat something with nothing. You know, America is pushing back on us, but, well, you know, what do they got? Um, they said this battle is inevitable, that we knew that our system was so different that when we got, that China could, to the U.S. could tolerate our system when we were smaller, but when we became a major power and a major economy, that we would have this battle. We knew it was coming. It was inevitable. Um, and um, we're together, united, and we can, we can handle it. And they said things like the U.S. is strong enough to lead the world, but not strong enough to take on the world. Um, and that countries and companies are um, basically are going to have to figure out how they fit in with us. Um, and uh, one thing they did say about the, uh, the U.S., they said, it's not too smart to put in uh, um, barriers that force somebody to put massive investments forward to compete with you. Um, let me let me then segue to December in Washington, where I met with some senior Trump administration officials. They were saying that um, things like um, basically regime change. They were saying nobody can be happy in China. China, you know, suppresses all these people. It does all these terrible things. Um, we have to contain China. Uh, we have to take them on, and we can do that. Um, and it was really kind of scary how they believed in regime change or, they, you know, they didn't use those words, but that was what they were um, framing it like. And um, 
you know, I'm, I believe the Chinese think that our regime will change before theirs will. So I'd like to see a more enlightened uh, side of the U.S. And uh, if you'll let me continue for a while, I, I think we're, thank God, finally getting there. Um, because I think we're learning that the, the best defense is a good offense. And even conservative members of Congress, um, Rubio, uh, Cruz, uh, Hawley, Others are putting together legislation that is um, that is based on um, industrial policies, which was anathema to the Republicans for so long. Um, Rubio had a great great quote. He said, "We got to give up on free market fundamentalism." Um, and so there's there's um, there's a, a lot going on in Congress. Whether it's going to come out anytime soon, but there's there's almost 400 bills that have been put in in this Congress relating to relating to China. And let me just talk about a couple, you know, just give you a, a couple of them. Schumer and another bipartisan group have something called the Endless Frontiers Act. And it's investing in public research in 10 areas, quantum computing, AI, advanced energy technology, um, 5G, um, S&T education. That sounds like Made in America 2025. Um, I, actually, I think we should study what China is doing because it's not like they um, are, are not doing some smart things in what technologies are important. Um, Cornyn, um, a Republican from Texas, and numbers of others have a Chips for America Act, $50 billion to uh, get chip manufacturing back and, and get more money into uh, uh, chip R&D from, from the government. And I did a report on technology um, back in 2010, and it showed that the first three decades after World War II, um, two-thirds of the money put into um, um, uh, R&D came out of the, of the U.S. government working with uh, companies and academics. And, and why was that? Because uh, you need patient money. Uh, you know, uh, venture capital is not gonna not gonna be able to uh, fund uh, real science and technology research and 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 and, and fundamental research. One bill that's very interesting is called the Open RAN bill by Mark Warner, who used to be the co co founder of Nextel, and it's about taking away Huawei's advantage on five G through software, uh, through software that that you put into the system that takes away any advantage for somebody who put in the pipes and and and, and put in the uh, the uh, the routers, etc. Um, I don't think any of this is going to go anywhere in this election year. Some of it might get pieces of it in the Defense Authorization Act at the end of the year, but um, it's. Um, uh, I think it's going to it's going to take a number of years to do it. But at least attitudes have changed. Yeah, very interesting. I mean, you know, I, I won't ask you necessarily what would happen under you know either Trump or Biden because that might be sort of too speculative. But it does sound interesting that you know the Republicans are actually some of the ones that are focusing on uh, these uh, you know industrial policy ideas. But uh, let me be clear: it's not sure. the White House. It's not, right. It's not of course, the administration. Of course. It's Republicans in Congress, and Biden right. has very similar policies. So right. I'm 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 even if if Biden wins and even if you have a Republican Senate, you might start seeing some of this. Great, very interesting. Uh, I'd love to go a little bit deeper on one industry, uh, the semiconductor industry. It's something that's in the news a lot recently with SMIC, and I know that APCO, you know, you work with the Semiconductor Industry Association, and so, you know, after you know ZTE a while ago, Huawei, you know, clearly China in some ways has had a wake up call and is mobilizing a lot of efforts around building, you know, chip fabs and sort of really becoming a future leader in semiconductor industry. Uh, my question for you is, you know, how fast can actually China 
trying to build this capacity for an in, in indigenous chip industry? Is this possible? Uh, and you know, what sort of how would this shape sort of American access and growth in China? American companies' access and growth in China. Well, you know, this is interesting because um, the most advanced American technology companies have the best market share in China because China can't do it yet. So uh, let's just look at some of this. American, you know, the American, uh, well, the chip import bill for China is higher than their oil bill. It's about $300 million a year. Um, you know, China can, can supply a very, very small part of, of, its, of its chip demand and its low-end chips. You know, China's in, into testing and, and assembly um, and packaging. They don't really have the fabs. Um, they do have pretty good, better and better design capabilities. But um, the truth of the matter is the American chip companies can't not be in China. Qualcomm, two-thirds of its chips, Micron, over 50%, Broadcom, over 50%, Intel, 30%, TI, over 40%. Um, if they can't sell in China, they'll be replaced by the Japanese and the Koreans and others, and uh, the American chip industry is going to lose out globally. Um, that, you know, that is a very difficult situation to be in. Um, now, the, the, uh, the blocks that are being put on now, for example, the direct product rule that blocked um, TSMC, the, you know, the, the world's top you know, contract fab, from being able to sell to high silicon, Huawei's subsidiary that was really getting there on mobile chips, um, uh, is, is very strong. And so China is hampered very deeply right now on uh, with this pushback on chips. But the countervailing argument is if, if, if they start blocking, you know, if Americans can't sell in there, then Americans are going to lose its global leadership over time. So it's kind of a standoff. I think it, I think it will be worked out. Um, but it's, uh, uh, it, it's pretty worrisome. But Ch look, China needs chips. 90% of smartphones, 65% of PCs, 65% of smart TVs are all manufactured in China. You know, the chips that come into China are put into products that go out of China. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it, it's really kind of the, the top industry in the, in, the, in the trade war. Yeah. And what's your sense about this recent, um, you know, sort of restrictions around, around SMIC and what sort of tools and et cetera they can buy? You know, I was reading an article on that, and it said that actually Qualcomm is, is the second largest customer of SMIC behind Huawei. And so, you know, these Qualcomm chips that you're talking about, I assume that those are not the really high-end ones, but they're just the regular chips because you can't really produce the high-end chips in China. Yeah, fair enough. I, I, I think that there's a, uh, quite a bit of that. Um, well, SMIC, they've now, um, of course, it's, it's obvious SMIC does uh, produce chips for the military. Um, it's the biggest SOE chip maker in China. Um, so now the U.S. is, is, is going to want wants to block, block applied materials, LAM research, KLA, the, the chip uh, equipment, the chip equipment making companies um, from SMIC. Uh, that could very much cripple them because the, the U.S., those companies control uh, chip making equipment globally. Um, I heard that as, as Huawei did by um, buying ahead of time as much as they could, thinking they're going to get cut off. 
that SMIC is doing the same thing with the equipment companies now. Um, I'm not sure where this is headed. Um, it, it, you know, it, so far it's talk and, and nothing has been done. Um, but there, it's you know, there's 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 movement in the U.S. government to to do this. I'm not sure where it's going to go because what are you what are you going to do to these companies? You know, when they got 30, 40 percent of their market in China, we're going to cripple America's leading industry. And conversely, what do you think about the you know China? Uh, maybe a week or two ago, announced the potential that there is a you know entity list that exists, but no names were mentioned. You know what effect would that have, if anything? Do you think? Well, it's funny they they you know back in May they came up with this unreliable entities list in relate in reaction to the entities list, and it was very vague what what, what it said, but it did say that it would um, you know that it went after companies, organizations, and individuals. Um, who, who, who basically, if you follow the American government telling you you can't sell something to China or you hold China, technology back from China, then you will face retribution from China. And uh, so when they came up with a more defined version of it recently, they came out with very strong statements. And the next day they started walking them back because they, they are, China is very worried about scaring American technology companies out of China because they need them, especially under this, uh, this new dual, dual circulation model that Xi Jinping is, has, been, uh, has, been, has been pushing. Um, so we'll see. It's, it's more of a hammer hanging over their head. Right, um, like sort of down th- they'll make yeah. I guess they'll make somebody uh, an example out of it um, uh, uh, but uh, I don't think it may not even be a tech company we'll see it's interesting. You, you mentioned the dual circulation, uh, you know, idea that's been talked about quite a bit recently. And it's interesting. You mentioned that China needs these companies for that policy. But, you know, sort of my understanding is it's very much focused on at least one of the circulations or the key one is, you know, this domestic, you know, consumer producer uh, tight loop. And, you know, China for decades or at least 10 years has been pushing, you know, cons- you know, consumer purchases, et cetera. So that part doesn't seem that new. But but this idea that, you know, there's this more indigenous producer ecosystem, you know, things are just not for exports does seem a little bit new. What's your, you know, can you explain how the U.S. imports play a role in the dual circulation idea? Yeah, I mean, dual circulation right now is is like a lot of policies in China. They get announced by uh, Xi Jinping, and then they start implementing him a little later and figure out how how, how it's going to work. But basically, he he calls it a new development model um, to face um, long term hostility, to face protected conflict with America and its allies. He is seeing China under siege for a long time, and so he's stepping back and he's saying, "Let's separate the outside world and China. Let's step back and." And look at how do we rejigger the way we deal with the world to protect ourselves. And that is to depend on the Chinese domestic market, the Chinese domestic consumer market. Build that for your growth, but also for um, uh, domestic technology and supply chains. And so uh, what this is going to do is it's going to offer, I think, pretty good opportunities for foreign companies that meet China's needs. If you have technology that China needs and wants and is using in its, in its manufacturing and whatever, or if you're a big box retailer that provides, I think, you know, quality goods at a low price to Chinese consumers, um, you help with their, you know, their domestic consumer economy. So 
I think there's going to be opportunities. I think hacking and IP theft are going to continue to be pretty strong because China is it's almost like a war footing. There's a lot of militaristic language in 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 what they've been putting out. Um, so uh, it, it's basically and to not be reliant on external demand. Um, you know, to to eliminate that risk and have domestic demand be the re- the real driver. Um, and imports, I think, will be fine if they meet China's needs. So it's going to be much more. You've got to you got to meet the you know the party's needs. And my advice to companies is you better have both eyes open because you're going to have opportunities in China. But you're also um, you better believe that the goal is to learn what you do. Share what you do, and then um, and replace you, and so you got to have both eyes open. I tell companies um, find a comfortable place between suicide and self destruction. Um, suicide is 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 just rolling along like you always haven't think thinking things haven't changed. They've changed profoundly. This is a paradigm shift. Self destruction is getting so scared of the government. In China, you start handing over IP you should not be handing over. Um, the other thing I tell them is use China to beat China. Use the money you make in the China market to bring it home and, and advance your technology to hold on to your global positioning. Um, just like China used you to beat to beat America um, uh, when you know by welcoming you before and then putting in these other policies. So you just you got to have your eyes wide open. This is not a this is not a win win situation. Right, got it. Um, great. Another question um, I have around some of these more recent events, such as you know the discussion of blocking WeChat and TikTok. Um, you know, one of the articles I read recently, which is very interesting, so Andy Brown um, in the New Economy Forum argues that Trump is losing the tech war, or excuse me, trade war. You know, one reason why is focusing on things like these very visible, but maybe not that effective blocking techniques like, you know, WeChat or TikTok and suggest, you know, that the U.S. should be more strategic in its targeting of industries if it's going to do this, like batteries, for instance, might be uh, one. I'm curious what you think about, you know, this argument generally uh, in the article. And then secondly, you know, what some of the strategic industries the U.S. should be thinking about. You mentioned some in the Made in America 2025. uh, But as far as you know, not just industrial policy, but potentially, you know, taking an aggressive stance of blocking Chinese um, companies. Where do you think the U.S. should focus? Well, you know, if you if you if you look back, you know, I'm I, I was chairman of the American Chamber in '96, and I was on Capitol Hill lobbying for MFN, PNTR, uh, WTO, um, reasonable policies on China. But our group, well, the last five, six, seven years, we started going to the Hill and saying, you got to do something. Go to the administration, you got to do something. China overreached. They went too far. Um, and, you know, we were starting to seeing, instead of reform and opening, we were seeing reform and closing. We were seeing reforming for Chinese companies and closing for foreign companies where, where China could do it. Um, so Hillary would have pushed back also. Um, and no, so... It was ready for us to push back. Um, of course, uh, Trump and Navarro and Lighthizer uh, did a very, uh, a very strong pushback. Um, I think a lot of the business community wasn't in favor of the tariffs, but they realized they got China's attention very strongly and brought them to the mm-hmm. negotiating table. I think if Mr. Lighthizer had had his way uh, with trade, and, um, and he wouldn't have done the steel tariffs uh, that you know that alienated us from a lot of our allies. Um, and he would have had a consistent 
trade negotiating stature with China. But there was always another tweet. There was a phone call with Xi where Trump would back off. And it was so inconsistent that we ended, we ended up with the, 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 the phase one trade deal, which... You know, all the tough stuff, all the all the industrial policies and, and state-owned enterprise and subsidies were pushed off on the side. And there were some changes in agriculture and others, but mostly it was a bunch of numbers because the president focuses on the trade deficit and they had to give him numbers that would make him happy. And so China offered to buy 200 billion more over two years. Nobody believed those numbers were could be fulfilled even if COVID hadn't come around, but they sounded good. And so now we've got this phase one trade agreement um, that that um, really doesn't amount to so much and all the other stuff laying on the side. Um, so Andy Brown's premise was, well, wait, the trade deficit's actually gone up 25% um, since Trump took office. Not that, not, not that that is the core thing, except in the president's mind. Um, and now, I, you know, now we don't, well, look, we used to have all these dialogues. We had the Joint Commission Commerce and Trade. We had the Strategic and Economic Dialogue. And um, now we've got no dialogue. We have a very thin thread between Leo He and Mnuchin and, and, and Lighthizer. Um, you know, we've quit talking to each other, and that's a very dangerous thing for two uh, superpowers like this. So um, putting this back together is not going to be easy, but um, it's going to have to be done. And, and uh, uh, hopefully, hopefully, you know, hopefully China is now trying, China's doing some charm offensives, China style, wolf warrior style, where, you know, it's, um, let's go and, you know, try to talk to the world. But what they're telling the world is things are messed up and it's all your fault. We have, we're a hundred percent right. That is not going to be a, a way to open up dialogue. Um, maybe with a new administration, if that did happen, they would have a different attitude. But I think we're in for a, a long-term struggle of, 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 of distrust and, uh, and, and strategic competition. But that doesn't mean we, we can't have dialogues. You know, we can still solve a lot of global problems if the attitudes are right. Hell, we were able to talk to the Soviet Union when uh, we were, you know, basically at war with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, the, the last question sort of I, I'm going to ask before sort of opening up to some of the audience questions. So, you know, those of you in the audience, please sort of add your questions to the Q&A feature and we'll, we'll ask Jim them. Uh, but, you know, one of the areas that I focus a lot on is, is studying Chinese private firms and particularly the influence of the party. Uh, and ideology on on fir- on firms, private private Chinese firms, and so not SOEs. And, you know, this has been in the news recently because President Xi uh, was, I think, it was a United Front organization. He was giving a speech in front of it and discusses a lot of sort of ways for you know entrepreneurs to sort of be integrated in the party more effectively. And clearly, there's a lot of examples of entrepreneurs being very vulnerable uh, to the party. You know, given that a lot of the innovation comes from private firms. You know, I'd just love to hear some of your comments about the role, the position of private firms in China now with the part, party strengthening uh, its grip on them. Well, yeah, as, as she said, what, east, west, north, south, the party controls all. I think the party is just moving into uh, another realm. Um, I think this also follows on to the dual circulation model. 
because he knows he needs private enterprise to be able to do this economic development domestically, but um, he also wants control of them. So they're going to build a database of entrepreneurs. They're going to be monitoring them. They're going to build a backbone group that will um, that will advise the the, the party and the government. Um, but this is and there you know I think the party cells in companies they've been pretty benign so far in mm-hmm. in the foreign companies the labor unions and the party cells that were right. forced upon them they actually help you communicate with the government they help keep you know, your workforce somewhat stable I think that's going to change now I think the information is going to start going the other way because remember all those party members have a have a, a study she app. On their phone, right. where they are studying, where they're watching videos and listening to speeches and reading documents and taking tests, and their score goes up to a central database, which affects their standing. So I think they might they'll they might be required to start keeping an eye on these companies and telling the party what they're doing, and also um, telling the party the ways that they can get a better grip on them. So. I think for for the private enterprise, and this is you know what I was just talking about. I think is going to be a follow on effect in in foreign companies. Um, it's going to be very different. And also, can any Chinese entrepreneur build a global company under under the current situation? Look what TikTok did. Zhang Yiming, right. he's a great entrepreneur. He said he had Douyin. It was successful. Let's do TikTok outside. It took off. It was going to be separate and different. Um, but because of the distrust of the Chinese government, um, he's in that situation he is today. And that's a lot of what's gone on with Huawei. So can any Chinese entrepreneur, especially if now that they've declared that the party's going to have a grip on you, can any of them build a, a, a global company? He might be confining his, his entrepreneurs into, in, into the borders of China. Uh, China isolated itself in the past and it didn't work out very well. Yeah, that argument makes a lot of sense to me. I do think, yeah, there's very few examples of Chinese multinationals actually succeeding in, uh, you know, the U.S. or Europe. And it's yeah, going to be increasingly difficult, I think, the more the party exerts its control. So I agree. Uh, great. So we have a lot of questions from, from Carl Weaver. Thank you, Carl, for all of your uh, many questions. I'm going to sort of distill them down to one uh, one question. A lot of the stuff you're asking about is, you know, Taiwanese influence in semiconductors. And I'm curious, you know, we talked about SMIC. I mean, that was founded by folks from Taiwan, you know, leaving TSMC. Uh, and so, you know, on the one hand, in the semiconductor industry, you have you know, the hardware, you have, you know, you need to get the right tools, et cetera. But another is human capital. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit about, you know, this, you know, building industries and, and the effect of like Taiwanese, um, you know, innovators, engineers coming over. Also the effect of U.S. Uh, trained Chinese that also go and help uh, found these new industries. Actually, the talent, I mean, look, the, you know, the, the whole thing, can China innovate? Um, people say, oh, no, they can't innovate. They're, you know, they got state industry and a road education. Of course, China can innovate. How many tens of thousands of really talented Chinese people have gone to MIT, Carnegie Mellon, Cal Polytech? They worked at Siemens. They worked at Google. They worked at HP. Um, they worked at Intel. They worked at Qualcomm. Yes, those people, that's, that's why Made in China 2025 was much more effective than the earlier ones because it brought in venture capital. It brought in, it, it brought in the entrepreneurs. I mean, the Chinese chip funds so far are about a hundred billion dollars that they, they they're putting forward, um, and the the um, 
I, I remember three years ago talking to friends in the in the in the chip business on how they were losing their Chinese staff to the Chinese companies. I remember having dinner in the Silicon Valley with some uh, uh, Chinese, uh, originally from China, venture capitalists who had been investing in Chinese chip companies for a few years and figured it would be their biggest payoff. Absolutely, China will build a a, a, a vibrant and probably globally leading uh, tech sector and chip sector. What the government has done is 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 slowing that down. If 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 they if they hadn't done made in China twenty twenty five, if China had stayed out of it and said and let their entrepreneurs and their venture capitalists in combination with the market um, build these industries and compete fairly around the world, of course China could do well. And of course when it comes to chips to Taiwanese. Look, I, I was a reporter for the Wall Street Journal in, in uh, Taiwan when, when, uh, when, they, when Morris Chong started TSMC, um, you know, when, when Shinju, that whole, that whole uh, uh, tech zone was started. Um, yes, the, the Taiwanese influence is huge, and those engineers over. When Richard Chong started um, SMIC, um, he, uh, he, he was a Christian. He brought in all these Christian uh, Taiwan chip engineers they had a church in the compound, and they all knelt down and prayed when the first chips came off the line. So, uh, quite interesting. <laughs> yeah, that, 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 that's an yeah, interesting. I, I wasn't familiar with that part of the st- story. Um, another question we have that sort of follows along some of these lines is um, about sort of, I guess, the lobbying from firms like Qualcomm and Broadcom. So, you know, you talked about the U.S. industrial policy and also the importance of of, of China to these large U.S. Uh, electronics firms, you know, what's your sense of how the U.S. these U.S. firms can lobby the government, and is that you know are they able to do that successfully, or they're just hitting a brick wall? This is from Margaret Pearson. Um, I think they they hit a brick wall if they talk to um, if they talk to Lighthizer or Navarro or some of the uh, or. Pompeo, of course, some of these real hardliners. But I think, uh, you know, w- w- when they get to Treasury, when they get to Commerce, um, you know, they have people listening. And I think in the end of the day, they're not going to be blocked from China because you know, that would be suicide. You're going to kill America's leading industry, an industry we need for our own national defense, an, an industry we need for our own an, any kind of tech development. So I think what will happen is they will be some kind of a moderation of these policies. And, you know, we got an election going on now, and I guess it partly depends on who's running these these uh, ministries or um, uh, departments, um, you know, going forward into the next year. But, yeah, the lobbying is very fierce, and that's why things have not been put in very strongly so far. You know, when, when, they, when, they, when they first came out um, uh, on the entities list and, uh, for Huawei, they, they found workarounds. You know, if you shipped from right. Britain instead of, instead of America, then, you know, if your chips were made in Malaysia, they could go in. Um, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of workarounds going on. And I think the government, uh, I do not see um, the, the real hardline bans maintaining because it, it hurts America as, as much as China. Yeah, makes sense. Uh, and the question is, well, we've talked to, you know, a bunch of private firms and multinationals uh, and, you know, it's a question about SOE reform uh, and, you know, it's part of the first round trade agreement. But, you know, these are seen as even more important given, you know, the current current uh, relations between the U.S. and China and China feeling a little threatened. And so, you know, 
so is reluctant to reform things. And this is from someone named Ta, Ta Wong. So what's your sense of, given the current position between the U.S. and China, uh, the prospects for SOC, SOE reform? Bleak. Um, I don't, I I don't, I don't really see SOE reform coming around, maybe reforming in in a way, uh, in a, uh, within a Chinese context and making them a little more efficient and, and, um, uh, accountable. But, um, look, that's the power of the party. Um, you know, the, the power of the party is, is, is state owned enterprise. Um, when the economy turns bad, they don't lay people off. Um, you know, when, when Bo Xilai was pulled out of Chongqing, what did, what did, what did, what did China do? Because it was looked at as, um, as, a, as a coup, actually, by the people of Chongqing, because um, they love this guy spending uh, central government money and in, in improving the city. And so what did they do? The, the central government went in with $50 billion worth of investments from SOEs. Um, you know, they, it's, it's power of the party. Um, I don't, I don't see that changing. And Xi Jinping is a true believer. In fact, he was, he was emphasizing SOE so much that in 2018, he had to start giving speeches to entrepreneurs saying, wait, 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 we still like you. We still like you. Mm-hmm. Um, and now, uh, and now, you know, he's bringing us, uh, the private entrepreneurs into the party. I think he calls them the two unswervings or something. Um, unswervingly supporting private enterprise and SOEs. It's almost like Mao's two whatevers. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is interesting to our you know earlier point. I mean, the innovation, you know, if you look at, you know, obviously, you know, Tencent, uh, uh, you know, Alibaba, you know, it's, it's the grassroots entrepreneurs that are really creating a lot of the innovation, but obviously the stability and things like employment, the power over the SOEs obviously provides a nice uh, counterbalance uh, as well. Uh, we have a question that's a little bit, a little, little bit different than our current themes, but I w- want to ask it anyway. So it's uh, from Wayne Silby, uh, and he's, you know, how concerned should we be about the digital yuan initiative challenging the U.S. dollar as a world reserve currency? I don't know. I mean, I, I read about that, but I'm uh, um, uh, when it comes to currency, um, I'm I'm just I'm not capable of. Uh, I, I don't have knowledge in that, so I I try to only talk about you know what I know something about. Yeah, it makes sense. Thanks. I understand. Um, we haven't talked a lot about the large high tech tech firms like Alibaba and Tencent. Uh, what's your sense? I mean, we have a question here from Ann Crotty uh, about the future of Tencent. And particularly, you know, these firms have in some of them, you know, Tencent, a large foreign ownership as well. And even SMIC has, you know, even though it's now SOE, you know, sort of is considered a state owned firm, you know, does I think Qualcomm or, own, own some of uh, you know, some of SMIC. So, you know, what, Tencent in particular, what's your sense of, of the future Tencent in particular, its owner, you know, the effect of its ownership of, by foreigners, 30 and 31%. I don't think, I, I think that can, that can probably continue. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, it's a market, it's a market issue. If China was to try to push Tencent to sell off its, uh, you know, its foreign shareholders, you know, sell that off to, uh, Chinese entities, um, it could really, you know, rack them uh, on the stock market. Uh, I mean, they might gradually over time squeeze the foreign investors out. But remember, they don't want to discourage foreign investors. You know, they right. still want foreign investors in China. So that it, it, it would be a, it would be a move that would could really hurt them. Um, Tencent is just a really brilliant company, actually. Uh, Pony Ma. You know, I, I, you know, some of these Chinese entrepreneurs, I've known many of them over the years. The difference is some of them, when they meet with their top um, staff, 
Um, it's the top staff listening to the founder. Um, mm-hmm. When Pony Ma meets with his people, he's listening to them. Um, you know, he's open-minded, um, uh, uh, creative, uh, doesn't spend a lot of time dealing with the press. Um, and China, and look, China, need, China needs uh, Alibaba and Tencent because um, they, they are involved in so many things. Um, and so I, I think they've got a, a, a bright future. There'll probably be a lot of adjustments along the way. Um, I think they're going to have a harder, harder time working internationally. Look, you know, look what's happening in India, right? I mean, India has just turned very dark on China. Uh, I think for fairly good reason that hand to hand combat where people are killing mm-hmm. soldiers are killing each other hand to hand at high altitudes and on the India border is just um, uh, it, it's so barbaric it's really hard to fathom. Yeah, that is that you know that does sort of say yeah say uh, say a lot about the uh, the issue the issues and it's you know this idea of potentially pushing out the foreign investors certainly potentially makes sense to me. I know you know SMIC uh, early on I think was not majority owned by the government, but there's actually over time, you know, they pushed out the, the foreigners. Um, uh, a question. I think the foreigners, I think the foreigners ran away because it wasn't doing very well also. Right. And the, and the government propped it up. <laughs> yeah. So there's, yeah, both were interested in, in exiting. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, one question that someone has, what I think is good, you know, we focus mainly on in some ways, negatives, uh, you know, where, you know, there's a lot of issues uh, going on. I mean, in the U.S., certainly a lot of the companies want to gain access to the China market still. China still needs the U.S. companies for a lot of the IP and high-tech products. Uh, But the question is, you know, areas of convergence around U.S. regulation of the internet and data between the U.S. and China. You know, it does seem in many ways that we are you know, I don't like to use the word decoupling that that much, but you know that's where things seem to be headed. But is there any areas where we can potentially have some hope as far as particularly information technology uh, and internet? Well, we, uh, I, I, you know, I think we're getting more like China. Um, you know, cyber sovereignty is coming to America. We've got the five cleans. Um, you know, the, the five cleans from um, uh, Secretary Pompeo, um, you know, we're, we're looking at uh, blocking WeChat and, and TikTok, uh, you know, forcing a sale. Um, it, would, it would be wonderful if there could be some kind of a step-by-step rebuilding of trust so that they, we could tackle these, these, these issues. Because all countries are worried about their data. You know, they're worried about and one of the five cleans from Pompeo is is requiring, you know, U.S. data to be in 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 U.S. servers and and in the cloud and not not Mm -hmm. have access to China. Well, that's what China has been doing for years and we've been pushing against it. So um, maybe we'll start seeing eye to eye on on some of these things. But, you know, that, you know, to be a little bit more optimistic, I've lived in China 30 years. Um, the Chinese people um, are, are, are uh, you know, people to people, um, the U.S. and China get along fabulously. You know, uh, companies that are doing real business get along very well. Our kids go to school together. They're marrying each other. You can hardly get in a taxi cab in Wuhan without the guy telling you about his cousin in Chicago. I mean, there's, you know, there's so many close ties between the wonderful Chinese people and, 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 and Americans. Um, I'm hoping that holds it together because as Kissinger said, it's the DNA of the political system that holds us apart. 
Um, and now we've got extremists on, in both countries. We have, a, we have an extreme version of, of the Chinese um, DNA, governmental DNA, sitting in, in uh, Zhongnan High. And we get an extreme version of American governmental DNA sitting in the White House. And so it's taken, this, it's taken both countries to the extremes, but the people in the middle haven't changed. Uh, I mean, one thing that is changing is attitudes. Um, you know, uh, what... Almost 70% of Americans now have a negative view of China. Um, and we've got a whole generation of young Chinese people, 40 and under, who have been, um, you know, they've had this uh, nationalism propaganda pushed at them since they were, since Tiananmen, actually, that, um, you know, that China's on the rise and the world's a zero-sum game. And so America and others are trying to keep China down. So you are a victim and you are under assault. We had the same victimization and narrative in America, that China stole our jobs, and we were so nice to China, and look what they're doing to us. Well, that's not going to get us anywhere. Yeah, I mean, that's a very complex situation you paint. I mean, whereas, you know, there are the people on the ground that it sort of is, yeah, very warm relations. Every time I'm in China, you know, there's, you know, you can tell that there's a lot of great sort of people-to-people work uh, being done. But, yeah, definitely the propaganda in both systems over the past, you know, certain number of years is is making that more difficult. Uh, I'm surprised we actually t- touched on the Belt and Road Initiative. One, someone has a question, Judy Stampler has a question about that. You know, it was just a general question. Can you share your insights on it? And what's the end game? And has it been successful? Well, I mean, Belt and Road actually was announced by Xi Jinping without any plan. It was, it was just an add-on to Jiang Zemin's Go Global. So the bureaucracy had to scramble. The NDRC started having weekly phone calls with SOEs. They had a KPI to do deals. So they did what comes naturally. They went around and found a lot of good, corrupt dictators around the world to do deals with. And they pumped money their way because anything that could be called a Belt and Road project was, 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 was you know, looked at as a good thing. Um, and uh, then they went way, you know, originally it was to tie China to its periphery, to bring, to bring development through infrastructure, to stabilize those places, to um, help get rid of China's overcapacity, and to, through economic development, uh, you know, build neighbors who were markets for you. Um, and then it just started going everywhere. I mean, I was thinking the road outside my cabin here in northern Minnesota, we could get a Belt and Road project and, 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 and fix it. But, you know, they tailored back. Then they started having so many bad loans around the world that Xi Jinping has pulled it back now. It's, uh, it, it, it didn't even have a central organizational uh, entity at first. He's pulled it back, brought more discipline and more focus. And I think it's going to be much more focused on back on China's periphery. Now, of course, then there's the, you know, the, the silk, the silk belt and road and the, the, the maritime, the, the, the Arctic belt and road. And they, they put that label on a lot of things, but I think as a program, it's, it's getting back to its periphery. Has it been successful? Well, um, it's going into a void. I mean, the, the develop, I, I talked to um, friends in the development world, and if you look at it, development financing got so complicated because we put all of our domestic, you know, that you know, snail darter um, um, kind of requirements that there were so many hoops and environmental and social things you had to go through. Not that some of that isn't important, but it got so complicated, it was hard to loan to anybody. China went and said, here's the money. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, and we're not going to care how you govern yourself and we'll probably uh, help a few of your officials, you know, have a nice retirement. Um, and so the, the money went out. Now, there's got to be a, a halfway point between China's laissez-faire and the West's, um, um, you know, kind of overbearing uh, regulation. And we should take a lesson from that in, 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 the, in the world, the, the, you know, the, the, the banks and the, the development agencies. Um, and again, compete, compete. You know, and there's now an, there's initiatives between Australia, Japan, India, and America to work together on on initiatives because um, you know China did recognize a problem. There's a lot of money needed out there in in the developing countries for infrastructure. Yeah, um, great. Well, thank uh, yeah, thank you for that. The, the, we're just about out of time. I have one last question. I think it's an, an interesting one to end on uh, from Zoe Huang, um, and and she asks. The, what's the role of APCO as an advisory firm operating in mainland China in helping business get back on the right track after COVID? Well, uh, Zoe, thank you because you're giving me a chance for a commercial. I usually don't do this. <laughs> we uh, APCO is a, a advisory firm that helps multinationals with their 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 business, political, and communication strategies in time in China. And after and, and after COVID, we're just doing what we always do. We're just helping them figure out. We we watch policy, we watch regulatory, we communicate with the government, and we try to find ways for people to navigate the minefield of China and do business. Um, and uh, you know, we're very very much involved with the technology and the the trade battles and all of that. Um, and uh, uh, well, that's, I guess that's it. Thank you for the question. Yeah, no, but how about sort of post COVID? Is there any like sort of you know as you know China's adjusting very quickly? You know, as you mentioned, people don't aren't even wearing uh, masks anymore. Is there any sp- sort of special programs you have to help with that uh, challenge? Uh, we're just helping them get back to business. Okay. You know, um, you know, reconstituting supply chains. Figuring out how do you, you know, what's in China for China and what should you move out? Because, uh, um, you know, there's a lot of stuff where China's got too expensive anyhow. And a lot of these industries that are manufacturing for the world wanted to go out um, because they were eating margin to stay in China because of its efficiencies and supply chain. So um, we're just doing more of what we always do. Great. Well, you know, with that note, I'll, I will, we'll stop. Uh, we're just about out of time, like I mentioned. I just want to first thank you, Jim. You know, we had a wide-ranging discussion. I know the initial idea was around this technology distrust, but given when I saw the interesting questions coming in, you know, I thought given your expertise and wide-ranging background, it'd be great to pick your mind on many of these things. And so thank you very much for, you know, going through all these different questions from the audience members. Uh, I'd also like to thank the audience members. You know, I attend a lot of webinars, and there's few where I see such active participation from the audience. We have about 30 questions. I apologize to the folks whose questions we couldn't get to. Obviously, we only have a certain amount of time. Uh, And with that, I'll conclude. Again, thank you so much for joining us. And like I mentioned, we'll be starting this new podcast, China Corner Office, and I hope that you subscribe on the podcast players and tune in. So thank you, Jim. Thanks for joining us on China Corner Office. This podcast was produced and edited by Chris Marquis, Kaiser Guo, and Jason McRonald. Did you enjoy the show? If so, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know your thoughts. And don't forget to subscribe to the feed for alerts when new episodes are published. See you soon.